All right, welcome. So we are in Romans 5, so you might go ahead and flip over there if you're not already there. I like to always go back to, um, to those basic things. Paul opens his letter and closes it with this. And the reason I keep coming back to the basics is not just because I um, think that, um, I don't know, it's good to do, but it also because I'm so, I find myself confused at times, as you probably do too, if you're reading Romans closely, trying to make sense of it. Paul sometimes just seems inconsistent. He uses the word righteousness like in five different ways and doesn't tell you which one he's using. Uh, he talks in this passage, um, death reigns and then no sin reigns. Uh, we're justified by his blood and then later, no, we're justified by his resurrection. And, and so he, he does so much um, that gets kind of confusing at times. When we get into chapter 5, verses 12 and so, uh, he talks about Adam and you get this sense that uh, there's maybe some sort of guilt that we're inheriting or corruption or what's going on there. And so as we're trying to navigate all this confusing stuff in Romans, uh, this is what I kind of come back to to keep me tethered. As I try to make sense of, of Adam and Jesus and the gospel, uh, I'm reminded, okay, God has revealed his Father as I try to make sense of this. Uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, this is the hope for restoring uh, King of Israel. Uh, that somehow this is going to be in continuity with what we have in the Old Testament. So to understand Romans, we have to understand something about the Old Testament. That's, uh, that part, I don't think it's uh, all, but part of what Paul is dealing with is this issue of what do we do with the Gentiles. You have a, um, a congregation of Gentiles and Jews very early on in, uh, into the Christian movement. It's very possible that uh, Jews had been in charge, then they get expelled uh, because of... Um, an edict that went out that got rid of some of the Jews in Rome. Now they're able to come back. Um, and then you have this problem of who's in charge and who's more superior or who belongs in the church. So you've got this whole Gentile problem that we add to it. Faith is a big deal in Romans. And we're reminded, uh, I love this phrase, the obedience of faith, that whatever Paul means by faith, as we've discussed in this class, uh, there's this expectation of a lifestyle that accompanies it. So a lived out faith. And then grace and peace being these um, key words. Uh, we think about the mercy and the compassion of God. Peace as God is kind of bringing his shalom, setting things right. So with that kind of framework uh, that uh, we brought up several times, uh, we'll get into, um, we're, we're about to get into Romans 5. <coughs> to see where we've gone, um, that's kind of Romans 1, 1 through 4. That's prologue. Um, uh, we, are, um, we saw early on, chapter 1, language about God's faithfulness or God's righteousness. And we talked about how the language of the righteousness of God or God's righteousness should be understood much more broadly than something like, this is God's righteous status that now we have. Um, there's a couple seats up here. Are these two open here? Two up here? Yeah, come on in. So righteousness of God, we think, uh, as we've read the text closely, this is not just some sort of status that we have, but this is God doing right, God being faithful, faithful with regard to dealing with sin, sin needs to be dealt with, faithful with regard to his covenant with Abraham, uh, faithful with regard to uh, um, his creation that he wants to redeem. So it's this bigger view of God's faithfulness. Um, as we look at uh, the problem of sin, uh, sin seems to be not only a guilt issue, but also, I like the language we got earlier, a vocational issue, that uh, not only do we have some sort of guilt or debt because of wrong we've done, uh, but we're also, um, we have some sort of uh, brokenness inside that keeps us from being able to be the kind of people we're called to be. Uh, so we're living, uh, we're not living up to our calling. 
Um, and um, you get this idea at the end of Romans where Jesus' death is referred to as both redemption and as atonement. Redemption is slavery language. So part of the problem with sin is not just guilt, but it's we're enslaved to it. And Jesus frees us from that slavery to sin. So you get that kind of vocational sense. Um, and atonement is this language of purification. So guilt um, and uh, vocation seem to be both involved here. Chapter 4, uh, Paul uh, brings up Abraham as this model um, or this illustration of faith leading to righteousness. George did a very helpful job <coughs> of showing how um, the whole idea of faith and righteousness, justification, is tied to covenant. Um, so what God is doing with the covenant with Abraham um, addresses these same problems of, uh, of guilt and needing to be put right. So God does that. He begins that process through the covenant, which is also um, uh, has in that promise to bless the nations. So what God is doing through Abraham in that covenant uh, also has in mind a way of dealing with the larger problem, which will uh, help us as we get to Adam um, in about 11 verses. And then the last thing, that this isn't in Romans, uh, I read this recently in Mere Christianity, um, maybe my favorite book, I come back to it all the time. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about the three parts of morality. And this is maybe helpful uh, as a, another way of framing some of this. The three parts of morality. How we um, interact with one another, so kind of fair play, uh, how humans interact with humans. What goes on inside, so character or virtue, kind of the interior side of things. And then the other part of morality is um, what life is to be about, um, kind of the goal of life. And he says that we often get caught up in the first one, how humans are to interact. We see that in our uh, political um, um, dialogue sometimes, as though uh, if we get the right laws or the right um, kind of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, policies in place, somehow it's going to fix things. We can fix all the externals, it's going to take care of it, but we're reminded, no, that's only going to take care of part of it. We also have to deal with what's going on inside. Uh, so there's this, um, how we deal with each other, what's going on inside, and what the goal of life is, uh, which has made me think then about the reverse of that, maybe the three parts of immorality. We don't treat each other the way we should. Interior, kind of we got a heart issue, and we don't even know what life is supposed to be about uh, often. We don't live... Um, uh, according to uh, how we are called to live. And you see that uh, Jesus is an example uh, of showing us how we are to treat our neighbor, showing us what it means to be a person of virtue and character, and showing us what life is about. Uh, and so as we get into this and we see Jesus as the faithful Israelite, uh, the true Adam, uh, he, he demonstrates maybe C.S. Lewis's ideas of what it looks like uh, to have those three parts of morality properly functioning. Okay, now chapter 5, uh, verse 1. With all of that... Um, preliminary stuff. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the language of justification, as we mentioned, uh, can be tied to covenant. We have been made right. We've been brought into a covenant community. Uh, our sin has been dealt with. We are being made into the kind of people that we were meant to be. Uh, through faith, uh, he has talked about Abraham's faith it could be a sense that we're justified or made right through Jesus' faithfulness, which we'll get to, but it's not as important here. Um, so we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God. Um, the language of peace, particularly in a context where he's talked about the wrath of God, 
uh, seems to be not this uh, emotional kind of interior disposition like I feel good with God. Uh, instead, it's because of, uh, of faith, because of God's compassion, we are now, um, we don't have to worry about uh, God's punishment. Uh, God's dealing faithfully with sin, uh, which is maybe an important corrective um, in our culture where uh, we're mostly interested in how we feel about God. You know, I feel like God's cool with me right now. I'm, I'm a good person. That's not Paul's point. It's um, we have peace not because we feel like it, but because of what Jesus has done. Uh, it gets us out of our own um, kind of narcissistic way of thinking about God and uh, puts the focus back on what's gone on through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. <coughs> so this uh, language of gaining access might be temple language. Um, the Gentiles particularly had this kind of exclusion from the temple. Now through, uh, through Jesus we have access. Um, I'm not sure what he means if he's saying we have access into a particular standing as those who receive grace or if he's, it's a way of uh, uh, the grace in which we stand is something like the presence of God. Um, I'm just not sure. George, you have any, any insight? This is Paul's, um, Paul's ambiguity. Uh, when we do systematic theology, starting with Romans might not be the best because uh, he is so ambiguous at times. Uh, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, we have learned not to boast, um, in, for the Jews not to boast in their pedigree and their Jewishness. Um, Gentiles can't boast in anything they've done. Uh, rather, we boast in uh, what Jesus has done. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Um, my own reading of this, and I don't know, I haven't read anyone else who thinks this way, so if you don't follow me here, that's totally fine. But earlier in chapter 3, um, we encounter this idea that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that that language might mean something more than... Um, than sin, but we've fallen short of imaging uh, God's glory as we were made to. And so perhaps, perhaps what's going on here in verse 2 is we boast in the hope that we are going to be made those who properly image and glorify God. And one of the reasons I think that might be the case is because what we get in uh, verses 3 and 4 is just that idea of the kind of people we're becoming. So whether you follow me, follow me there or not, you get that same idea in verse 3. Not only so, but we also, I don't know why the NIV has glory in our sufferings, it's boast. We also boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So you get a similar idea in James. Uh, consider um, pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials because you know that trials produce perseverance and let perseverance have its full work. Uh, so you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, or something like that. I said it really fast, so it sounded like I knew it really well. Um, <laughs> but the same, the same concept in James um, that you get here in, uh, from Paul, uh, suffering can lead to perseverance, and perseverance can lead to character. And uh, the reason that both of them, James can say, consider it joy, or Paul can say, uh, we can boast in this, is because he's operating from a framework that's really foreign to us, and that framework is something like, it really matters your, what your character is. It really matters the kind of person you're becoming. James says you can consider it joy because you're becoming a mature person. Paul says um, uh, we can boast in this because it's producing character. And this is getting at that kind of second part of morality that I brought up. Or um, 
the idea that I've already mentioned time and time again that the sin problem is not just a guilt problem. If the sin problem is just a guilt problem, why boast in this? Who cares the kind of person you're becoming? Because all that matters is that you, uh, you get a, you know, um, forgiven. Uh, but, but there's more than that. Uh, Paul seems to um, kind of be just tied to this idea that who we are matters. Um, if the goal is just uh, getting to heaven, then maybe suffering doesn't have a role. But what if perhaps the goal isn't simply getting to heaven, but beca- becoming the kind of people for whom heaven will feel like home? Josh? Yes. The New Living uses the word rejoice rather than boast. Okay. And uh, N.T. Wright had an interesting slant on this, that we can rejoice in the midst of mm-hmm. our sufferings rather than because of them. And I, I really like that because it's so difficult when you're suffering because of an illness of a loved one or whatever, or the loss, you're not rejoicing because of that, mm-hmm. but you can somehow rejoice in the midst of it because we're looking forward to that hope and claiming this gift <coughs> right. that God has promised. So yeah, yeah the, the suffering or the problems, the trials, are not themselves the cause for joy. It's, it's what God can bring out of it. That's... Um, and so we, we have to hold this intention with the lament psalms and with places like Job where there is a real place to cry out and say, where are you, God? And things aren't right. So it's not, even with James, consider it pure joy. You've got to gotta imagine he's using hyperbole there because, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't, doesn't sound like considering it pure joy. But there is hope at the end of that psalm, as hopefully you guys picked up on last week. Do you have something that uh, you're going to add to that idea? No, I, I think it really makes a lot of sense. Um, you have to have that ultimate purpose. What's your ultimate purpose mm-hmm. in life? What were we created for? And if you have that, if you have that nailed down correctly, then it makes sense of the suffering. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there's really it doesn't make any sense to have suffering. Right. Or the suffering is, you know, a lot of people question their faith or question God's existence because of suffering in the world. But that doesn't. Once you get rid of God out of the picture, it doesn't make the suffering any less bad. Mm-hmm. It just makes, there's no real reason for it. Yeah, it's, uh-huh. I don't know, I think that's the hardest question of people of faith to answer. Why does God allow so much suffering? But for Paul, suffering is kind of <coughs> the means by which God uh, accomplishes his will for the world. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, I guess, <laughs> for us in some ways, but also it gives you, gives you purpose as, mm-hmm. as you go through that. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, so as it's not maybe necessarily the case that God wills all the suffering and brokenness, but this is who God is. He takes what's broken and he can bring good out of it. Um, so whether it's suffering, um, trials, saw hand. Yeah, Steve? Yeah, I, I, and for me, the interesting part is, is that we don't necessarily embrace suffering, but God himself embraces suffering for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So suffering has a purpose, even though we don't necessarily understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll uh, in just a little bit. He'll talk about you know Christ dying for us uh, as a, as a means of redemption and um, of making things right. Uh, so it's it's very much in line with that. What this whole section is not in line with uh, is uh, the question that if if the only thing that matters is going to heaven when you die, 
if the only thing that matters is forgiveness, this paragraph doesn't fit that paradigm. Is that fair to say? So Paul is thinking way bigger than just how do I get forgiven and go to heaven? Or else verses uh, 1 through 5 here don't fit. Yeah, is this a hand? Yeah. They're beating me. I, that's what they did to Jesus. And so that's just part of that spiritual maturity. You start to see it from mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, so the same, uh, that's fascinating. You have Peter and John um, who, who experienced that. Uh, not long before that, Peter had been trying to avoid suffering at all costs, right? Denying Jesus everything he can. After that, not only does he rejoice, but he goes back and he prays. And what's fascinating is he doesn't just pray, or he doesn't pray, let me escape this. He doesn't pray, uh, you know, um, bring justice against them, uh, uh, give me peace. Instead, fascinatingly, this guy who is a coward earlier prays for boldness. Uh, It's as though Peter has a whole kind of vision change about what his life is about. Help me to be bold so I can continue on this path uh, because it's picking up that whole idea of of suffering uh, bringing redemption. Okay, Uh, verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. So uh, last chapter, chapter 4, you have Abraham, hope against hope. Um, here we put our hope in, uh, in the redeeming one. Um, and we won't be put to shame. We won't be disappointed uh, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, that's a, a pretty solid um, uh, thing to put our hope in, the Holy Spirit. Uh, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, or translation might be weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. This is where I want to say, Paul, who's righteous at this point? What are you talking about? Um, Didn't you just say that's not a person, uh, a category? Uh, But maybe. Uh, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, So I... One of the things that's really helpful about verses 6 through 8 uh, is it, it reminds us of the character of God uh, and of Messiah, Jesus, uh, which might help us then navigate uh, this discussion of God's wrath we get in verse 9. So who is God? Kind of His character is one who, even when people are um, His enemies, He dies for them. Uh, the picture in the New Testament is not... You have this angry, wrathful God, and Jesus kind of runs ahead and finds a loophole in the system and dies for us. And so you have good Jesus and bad God. Um, but instead, it's, it's, this is God's initiative. This is God's plan. Uh, this good, loving, merciful, gracious God uh, wants to bring peace, and he does so by uh, giving his beloved son uh, to, to redeem us. So this isn't God versus Jesus. Uh, they're very much um, uh, going about this in the same way, uh, sacrificially. Um, verse 9 since we have now been justified by his blood so George again reminded us that this might be more than um, this is kind of brought into the covenant we're brought into this community where we are forgiven and made right and this is by his blood so just just to uh, point back to chapter 4 verse 25 
Uh, resurrection is linked to justification. He was raised for our justification. Here it's his death for our justification. So Paul resists any sort of really clear systematizing about how the crucifixion and the resurrection are tied to justification. Is it his blood? Yes. Was it his, his resurrection? Yes. Um, there's a lot, uh, a lot in his death and resurrection linked to our being made right. Um, and uh, boy, it just resists some really um, simple categorization. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? So as we think about God, again, as I just said, uh, he, his wrath I understand as being connected to um, him being faithful, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness with regard to sin. Sin needs to be dealt with. Uh, there is no way around um, this kind of corruption and brokenness being set right. Uh, that atonement needs to be made. Um, and so his wrath is going to uh, seek that out uh, in his righteousness. But he has already made a way. He has already taken care of it because in his nature, uh, he is not primarily a God of wrath, but of, of righteousness and mercy. Um, am I giving a fair take of this? I know George Wright is a little, um, he downplays God's wrath, maybe because we've overplayed it. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that Wright points out, N.T. Wright points out is that uh, the wrath of God, when Paul talks about it in Romans, is always in the future. <coughs> Uh, so there will come a day when God's wrath will be revealed against sin and against the brokenness in the world and God's justice. It w- God wouldn't be a just God if he just let people be unjust to, to other people and never made that right. So there's going to be a day when God will make everything right. But that's, that's still in the future. Um, but what, what the death and resurrection of Christ means is that now when we have faith, the faith of Jesus, through his faithfulness, um, we are justified, which means we're declared to be right. Um, And that means that we don't have to be afraid of the day of wrath in the future, because we've been declared righteous through the work of Jesus. And by the time that that day comes, we're going to live a life that's going to be faithful. Um, So what what uh, what this reminds me of is that we're justified by His blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of the Son, how much more, I mean, reconciled shall we be saved through His life? So there's a, you know, I've heard people say that once you're justified through your faith, you can never be more saved than you are at that point. And I think, in a sense, that's hinting at something that's true. But what it leaves out is this future part of salvation that we, there are still parts of me that aren't saved in the sense of that I'm not living the way I should live. So there, there's still parts of me that need to be saved. So yeah, I'm, I'm not afraid of hell, so to speak. But yeah, there's parts of my life that are still broken. So there are still things I can do that bring more salvation to my life. So in a sense, I can be more saved than I than I am right now. Yeah. It seems kind of confusing, I mean, the whole wrath thing, like at the very same time it's saying, while we were still God's enemies, God died for everyone, who everyone was his enemy at that juncture. Yeah. Um, like, does God's nature then change at some point where he feels it's okay to be violent towards other people, or is wrath something different than necessarily violence or punitive punishment? 
<laughs> yeah, um, uh, there does seem to be a punishment side to this. Um, as you kind of read through this, it does seem to be uh, the whole justice uh, judgments theme seems to be um, seems to be right there at the heart, uh, kind of going through Romans, or maybe not one of the hearts. It's like eight hearts of Romans. Um, so it's not as though there's two different characters of God. That he's righteous and he's loving. Um, his righteousness means that he's got to deal with sin faithfully. Uh, you've got to deal with sin uh, the way sin is supposed to be dealt with. So that's kind of the wrath side of God. But um, because he is also loving, he, he makes a way to, to faithfully deal with sin, uh, but to do so mercifully. And he does it by taking upon himself. Does that make sense? So, so it doesn't, it's not like he's um, schizophrenic or something. Uh, he's, his compassion is, is primarily who he is, and his righteousness is primarily who he is. But when his righteousness comes against sin, that's where the wrath side comes out. So he's not primarily a God of wrath. He's primarily righteousness and love. But when he comes against sin, you know, does that make sense? So it's, a, it's an aspect of his righteousness, but not uh, an aspect of his, kind of at the heart of who he is. He's not a God of wrath. Maybe. Yeah? I don't know about that, but we know God's very clear about his nature. I mean, his righteous, we can't appreciate how righteous, pure, holy. Mm-hmm. God is light and he has no darkness at all. We, it's hard for us to comprehend. Uh-huh. But his nature, it breaks out against sin and, and evil and darkness. But the amazing thing is he also loves us. Mm-hmm. So what can atone for mine and your sin? You and I can't do it. But God loves us so much, he became that perfect sacrifice that can satisfy his righteous nature. Mm-hmm. And we can access that, uh, that grace mm-hmm. through faith. Yeah. The story of the whole Bible. Yeah, Steve, and then back in the back. Kind of re- reminds me a little bit of, of Luke Acts, where you have the use of fire. Fire is something for those who are submitting to <coughs> the will of God. It becomes a refining mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But for those, or, or for those who are resisting it, mm-hmm. it becomes a destructive thing. So it's not necessarily an opposing kind of a thing. It's the fact that that is what God is working in the world, both for those who are seeking to become what God has created us to be in his image. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's a refining process. But for those who are completely opposed to it, it's a, it's a destructive process. Yeah, so, um, so his holiness doesn't change, but uh, depending on the material that uh, it's coming in contact with, it's going to be experienced as wrath or as refining. Yeah. Oh, back here and then up to Hilton. Yeah, I was just thinking, Josh, in, in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, it talks about the wrath of God being revealed. Uh-huh. And then in 24, it says, it, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed. So in verse 24, it says, therefore God gave him up. And so for me, in thinking about the wrath of God in that context, the wrath of God is his removal from uh, the picture, which causes all kinds of destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one, one way of thinking about it is, um, like C.S. Lewis's language, he gives people what they want. If you want to be, uh, if, if you want life apart from me, then you may have life apart from me. Uh, but that is, in a sense, kind of built in to experiencing the wrath of God as being um, away from his goodness and his love and his, uh, his life. Perhaps the highlight of this chapter this week for me was 
verses 10 and 11, which you just heard we went through. Today. <laughs> <laughs> and using these words, for since our friendship with God was restored mm-hmm. by the death of his son, while we could certainly be saved through the life of his son, now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus has made us friends with God. Mm-hmm. And uh, this idea of, of sitting down with a friend at a table and talking uh, really conjured up a much better image for me uh, than anything about wrath or all these other things. But uh, being a friend with God is, a, is something we, we really ought to dwell on. We yeah. a friend that we can rely on. Yeah, so your translations might say reconciled or use reconciliation. So Paul, that's, that's relationship language. So friendship is a, is a helpful way of saying that. So we've got, we've got atonement language, which deals with purification or guilt. We've got redemption language, which deals with slavery. And we have reconciliation rela- or language that deals with relationship. So as we think about what Paul's, Paul is addressing in Romans, it's not just guilt, uh, nor is it just vocation, but you also have relationship. Um, so it's, it's just bigger than how do we go to heaven when we die. It's how, how are we made right? with one another, with ourselves, with God, with the life that we're called to. Um, it's, it's very uh, challenging, um, but I think a lot more satisfying understanding of, of um, what Paul's getting at, even if we're only getting 30% of it in our confusion. It's still better than the 15% that sometimes it's, it's uh, narrowed down to. Uh, yes? It, it just amazes me that, that God created us. Yet when we read this chapter, when I talk to young people about this chapter, trying to reconcile the wrath of God, how much they pick up on that wrath thing, and they never pick up on what Hilton just said. Oh, yeah. But they got that wrath thing, Mm -hmm. but they never pick that up. That blows my mind. And God created us and created our minds. And that's his fault. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so much of the language that we get in chapter 5 is how much more. Uh, if, if this is the case, how much more what Jesus has done? And yeah, you're right. Uh, wrath shows up maybe once in this chapter, and reconciliation and, and, and redemption or justification shows up so many more times. Uh, but we hone in on this, and it seems like we're missing Paul's point that it's like, no, he's, this is not the primary thing about who God is. Uh, it's, uh, it's how he deals with sin, but it's not, um, it's not who God is. He's the one who loves us while we were subject to his wrath. Uh, if that doesn't give you a sense of the heart of God, then... Um, then we're missing something. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yeah, that's been way overemphasized. I think sometimes we misunderstand the cross as the place where God dealt his wrath on his son in our place. But I don't, I don't think that's the connection Paul's making here because the cross is the sign of the love of God. So the cross is where um, God, that was all God's doing. That was God's purpose. Uh, Jesus didn't do that to kind of say, well, God, I'll fix this for you. God's sending his son to suffer Mm -hmm. uh, the consequences of sin uh, on our behalf. Uh, But it's all God's doing. It's all about God's love for us and if God loves us that much to do that at that point when we are sinners how much more is he going to save us at the very end when he makes everything right and his wrath is revealed if we're part of that family of God then since he made us part of his family even while we were sinners how much more then is he going to 
uh, it reminds me of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So this is going to come back up in Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we don't have to worry about being separated from the love of God because he showed his love for us on the cross. And as long as we're in the family of God, then we're going to be uh, without condemnation at the end. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll have to move into verse uh, into verse twelve because we have a whole other um, whole other problematic issue with uh, with Adam. Uh, last comment on George's point. Verse eight. God demonstrates His love for us, and that Christ died for us. This is a demonstration of His love. It's not God demonstrates His wrath. Uh, he demonstrates His love. Um, all right. Verse twelve. We have dealt with the calling of Abraham in chapter 4, and now we're moving to Adam. And this is uh, maybe a helpful reminder that Paul sees uh, the calling of Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, as dealing with the sin problem, uh, not just kind of randomly calling Abraham for, uh, for um, some unrelated purpose. But Abraham was meant to deal with a larger sin problem. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, and then Paul starts his train of thought over in verse 13, kind of backs up to be sure sin was in the world, but let's slow down <coughs> at verse 12 um, and think about how to frame this discussion of Adam and Adam's relationship with sin. Um, there are uh, a couple ways of addressing what's going on um, here. One of the problems, one of the problems with Chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, is, is uh, how, does this, how does this relate to what um, scientific evidence seems to show, genetic evidence seems to show uh, with regard to uh, the human population. It would seem as though um, most scientists are in agreement that we have evolved um, and that genetics, our genetics link back to about 10,000, uh, a group of 10,000, not to uh, a single male-female pair. So. Uh, one of the issues that arises then is, is Paul um, setting this up in such a way that we have to believe uh, that all humans came from one male and female pair, uh, Adam and Eve, and that all sin resulted from what happened with this original pair that lived in paradise, um, or is, uh, is something else going on here? Is there a way to, that we don't have to see these two in tension, but we can have some sort of reconciliation? Is the Adam and Eve thing? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, what, uh, that's the question. Um, so it depends on how you read this. So uh, for some, uh, they say you got to believe um, in the traditional, and I don't know how far back the tradition goes, but in some sort of traditional view where Adam and Eve were the original couple, that the world was perfect, no death, no corruption, and then they sinned, and then death and corruption and sin enter into the picture, uh, and all of humanity can be traced back to them, and all of our sinful nature can be traced back to what happened with them. That's one way of reading it, uh, but as I've already mentioned, uh, one of the biggest problems with that is it's really hard to match with um, scientific data as far as uh, I understand. Um, another way of dealing with this is to see what um, Paul is doing is not talking about a an actual historical couple, uh, but uh, those of us who've kind of studied Genesis 1 and 2 can see that this might not be uh, literal history, might not fall in that genre, but he's dealing with something like a literary type. 
Um, and so you get this language kind of in verse 14 uh, that he is, uh, your NIV might say he is a pattern of the ones to come. Uh, it's tupos, sounds a lot like type, um, uh, of the one to come. So that perhaps what Paul is, is saying is uh, in um, Karl Barth's language, this is a parable. Uh, he's picking up on this kind of ancient uh, parable and he's going to show how uh, this, this parabolic way of understanding humanity and sin um, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So that's another option uh, that's, that you might go with. Um, N.T. Wright and John Walton, both uh, devoted evangelical scholars, say um, that, he, that Adam is a real historical person, but that he wasn't the, uh, but Adam and Eve weren't um, where all humans can trace their lineage back to. Instead, they are a representative couple. Uh, so there is a larger population of humans. And just as God calls Abraham out of the population, just as God chooses Israel, uh, so here uh, God chooses a couple um, and he gives them um, the opportunity to kind of live in this um, uh, paradise, uh, this place of paradise. And they sin and that sin kind of brings a larger corruption into um, into a world that already has other humans present. And if you read Genesis 2, you do find out that there are, if you read Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, you do find out that there are other humans present, like when Cain gets kicked out and he's like, but I don't want to meet those other people. And you think, where do these other people come from? Well, uh, this fits that idea that maybe Adam and Eve weren't uh, the first two, but they were a representative two, um, uh, to, to bring that, um, to kind of tie together uh, how Adam and Eve might be historical, uh, but at the same time, uh, we don't have to trace all of our genetics um, back to one pair. All right, this is, uh, <laughs> this is a lot. I don't know if I've lost some of you, if um, I'm a heretic now. Um, uh, I mean, when you read Genesis 2, by the way, if you don't know, Adam means human, Eve means life. There's already these kind of hints that, that when you're telling a story about human and life, living in a garden with a talking snake, that there are signs, uh, even that Genesis has, that this might not be literal history. Um, so it's not like we're saying, oh, we just, whatever science doesn't fit the Bible, we just call it myth. Because look, science doesn't fit resurrection, people rising from the dead, but, but Christians realize, no, this is a non-negotiable. You don't give up resurrection, or as Paul says, it all falls apart. Uh, but we might not have to make that case when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Um, instead, we, there's reasons uh, within the genre itself, within the story itself, uh, to see that as um, either parabolic or as not giving us all the details where they're more of a representative couple than a, um, um, yeah, the, the parents of the entire human race. So there are ways to read Genesis 1 and 2 and Romans 5 that don't need to be in tension uh, with evolutionary biology uh, as such. If you want to dig more into this, BioLogos is a great place to start. Um, uh, Francis, uh, what's his name? Francis Collins, um, The Language of God. Just a brilliant book um, uh, where this guy was an atheist. He's the head of the Human Genome Project, uh, head of the NIH now, but this uh, atheist uh, scientist, just brilliant, um, uh, was converted in part because of the, the beautiful um, kind of scientific evidence of, of how uh, the Big Bang leads to the formation of worlds, leads to evolution, and um, it got him kind of thinking about stuff as he thought about morality. He's reading C.S. Lewis. Uh, he eventually converts to Christianity. Yes? 
The Journey of Man? Okay. Uh huh. Okay. Oh yeah, Lucy. I think I saw Lucy. She's either in Chicago or or London. I've seen Lucy somewhere. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. And so we we don't need to necessarily live in fear of that um, as Christians. George, do you want to join me in my heretical stance? No, I just think it's important that we don't put that dilemma for especially younger students studying science or people going into science, because you hear all the time about people losing their faith because they're, they're forced to say, you either believe what science teaches you or what you're learning to be true. I mean, there actually seems to be right. Now, we can say, well, there, there's probably, maybe it's not right, but it really seems to scientists that this makes the most sense of how to explain how a lot of phenomenon in the world. And we don't want to say, well, that means you can't believe the Bible anymore. Right. Maybe the way we've read the Bible has been too literal mm-hmm. uh, before the science showed us that there was other ways of reading. Yeah. Um, a couple more thoughts on that, and then I'll fly through the last of this. This is mostly an American dilemma. A lot of, a lot of evangelicals outside of America don't get hung up in can we believe in evolution and in, uh, in the Bible. They're like, yeah, sure. But, but there's some historical reasons why America has gotten caught up in this. Um, <laughs> David Lipscomb was okay with evolution. I don't know if you guys knew that, but so this isn't just a, uh, a modern or contemporary reaction. Um, it's, uh, if anything, the contemporary reaction is to say, you gotta throw all that evolutionary stuff out if you're gonna be a Christian. Um, so, okay, 13 through 21, I'll read it and make two comments and we'll be out of here by 1050. Uh, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone account where there is no law. I think Paul's a little bit maybe exaggerating here. His point seems to be um, uh, that when the law shows up, it allows you to calculate sin or to know sin or to have a, a further guilt for sin. But he's already kind of established back in chapter 1 that there is a kind of guilt or brokenness that goes with sinning even outside the law. Um, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who do not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. So verse 14, death reigned. Verse 21, sin reigned. Uh, What he means here, I assume, is something like the corruption of sin reigned. Um, Not as though there was no death before, um, but, but something about sin is closely tied to the corruption we experience. Not just guilt, um... But, um, but that brokenness I've talked about. If it was just a guilt issue, then if you're kind of reading this, why bother giving the law? Because that's when it starts to get counted against you. Um, but it seems like it's not just a guilt issue. It's, it's where we've gotten off track. And the law was meant to put us back on track. But as it helped us show us where the track was going, uh, it also then helped us see how far off we were. Uh, 15. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more to God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Um, the language here, four times I think we get this language that we see in verse 15. How much more? Paul's point is not uh, Adam and Jesus are parallels, but uh, what is true about Adam is blown out of the water with Jesus. How much more? That's his point. Look, if Adam, we can say he screwed some things up, how much more did what happened with Jesus make things right? Um, 
And this is yet another reason why we don't have to be so tied to historical Adam, because Paul's point isn't what's true of Adam is true of Jesus. It's what Adam did, Jesus does a million times more than in fixing things. Um, uh, let's see. Verse uh, 16, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought uh, justification, or things being set right. So one man uh, brought condemnation, but... Uh, this is so much more um, following many trespasses. 17, if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? What I want to draw your attention to is not death reigns and then life reigns. It is death, this kind of corruption reigned. But when God deals with that appropriately, when he fixes it, guess who reigns? Or guess what reigns? We reign. We take on that image of God, and as we were meant to be rulers of creation who, who passion, or compassionately and wisely take care of it, now, when that brokenness is dealt with, we are free to be who we're called to be uh, as we reign over creation. So again, you see that vocational sense is just absolutely um, at play here. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. I think, again, Paul might be speaking in uh, some sort of hyperbole. So, condemnation for all people, justification for all people. So, the second phrase, most people don't think that Jesus' death, therefore, means that every human, regardless of whether they turn to Jesus in faith, is made right. Fair enough. We tend to think, well, Paul means all who respond in faith. Uh, So, in verse 18, uh, when we read, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all, I don't think we have to read that because of Adam's guilt, we somehow are all condemned. We inherit some sort of original guilt. I think we might inherit some sort of original brokenness or corruption, a leaning towards sin, but I, I cannot believe, especially with what we've read, that all humans at their birth are uh, guilty just by nature of being humans. Um, that doesn't fit with God as Father. It doesn't fit Uh, with grace and peace. It doesn't fit with a God who, out of compassion, uh, dies for his enemies. That whole idea of us inheriting guilt just doesn't fit. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I like John Wesley's words when he's talking, I think it's Wesley's words when he's talking about uh, Romans 9 and what sounds like predestination to hell. And he says, whatever it means, it can't mean that. And that's, that's where I am here. Whatever it means in verse 18, it can't mean uh, that somehow babies who die uh, are going to hell because they've inherited original guilt. It can't mean that, not because I don't want it to, but because I know the character of God that we've just talked about. And God's not the kind of God who condemns people who haven't had a chance to do anything. Whatever it means, it can't mean that. That's, that's where I fall on this. Uh, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteousness. So Jesus is uh, the faithful one. Uh, here in verse 9. His obedience. Uh, He is the faithful Israelite and the faithful Adam. What Adam was meant to do and he didn't do, Jesus did. Uh, What Israel was meant to do and they didn't do, Jesus did. He is the faithful one uh, and then he shows us what that's uh, to be about. Um, And we'll stop there because uh, it is 1051. All right, so a lot to cover. Um, Thank you all for, for coming, for listening, for not booing.